Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. On the show this week, the four-part docuseries Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. I'll be talking with Tiller Russell, the series director. I know to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire series and then listen on. The mid-1980s was a period of terror in Southern California. A series of random home invasions, sexual assaults, and brutal murders were happening across the region. Men, women, and children of all races and walks of life were victims, and the methods of killings fit no particular pattern. Some victims were strangled, some were shot, some were beaten to death. Night Stalker is the definitive portrait of one of the most disturbing and unpredictable serial killers in criminal history from the perspective of the two detectives leading the hunt to capture him. On summer streets and the pavements are burning, I said. In the 1980s, we were proud of the city. L.A. was glamorous. But if you went around to the other side, L.A. could be a very dark place. I was on the freeway, and here comes somebody speeding, and all of a sudden he just swerves around my car. It's like he's right there, like a moment stop. And he has this horrible big grin, and he's missing all these teeth. He just stared at me like a killer clown. We got us a serial killer. There was no doubt about it. This was a pretty sick individual. The so-called night stalker who has terrorized California. The same man is suspected in six to eight murders and 25 to 30 attacks. He's someone that will go into a home at night and will kill. I woke up to a very loud noise to which I responded, John, and immediately. I knew it wasn't John, but something was there. Tiller, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Now, this isn't your first documentary, and it's also not your first documentary that touches on true crime, criminal justice. Can you talk a little bit about your other work and why it is you're attracted to these topics and this genre? Um, Well, for whatever reason, I seem to be completely magnetized to this sort of true crime underworld phenomenon, whether it be, you know, the cops or the crooks and sort of all of my work dating back from the 7-5 through Operation Odessa, The Last Narc, The Night Stalker, and my upcoming uh, feature film, Silk Road. All of it really sort of touches on this this world of true crime. And And I guess the reason is, in short, I was raised in Dallas, Texas, and my dad was a district attorney, uh, actually in the DA's office, depicted in Errol Morris's film, The Thin Blue Line. And he kind of dragged me around to the to the cops and to the courthouses and precincts and jails and whatever all throughout my childhood. I think the idea was that I would be scared straight, whereas instead <laughs> I kind of imprinted like a duck on it and have spent my like entire professional life knocking around, uh, you know, with, with cops and with crooks and kind of trying to profile and come to grips with, I guess, crime in America in some way or another. All of this kind of feels like one long movie to me where all of a sudden it sort of spills into the next chapter and the next investigation. Why the Ramirez case? Why this particular story for this documentary? 
For me, it's always driven by character. My uh, producing partner on this, Tim Walsh, came to me when we were both writing a network television show, Chicago PD, and he said that he had met Gil Carrillo, the lead homicide investigator in the Ramirez case. And he's like, this guy's fascinating, and it's an unbelievable story. Do you want to go sit down to dinner with him? And so we went and you know went to this kind of old school diner together, and I just sat down, and he kind of began regaling me with tales of old LA, you know, and it instantly struck me that this was the story of an iconic killer in an iconic mm-hmm. city at an iconic time with these two iconic homicide detectives working the case. And it just instantly captured my imagination what was required on the part of the homicide detectives to put together a sort of massive, sprawling, complex case like this where the stakes are so high, where suddenly anyone in Los Angeles at any moment, whatever your age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, you know, could be the next victim. It's really interesting to me because uh, this is a very cop-centric documentary in many ways. And that's to some extent, like not really in fashion right now. You know, there really is sort of this uh, push toward things about wrongful convictions and injustices and police corruption. But here you have really two, uh, what everyone sort of describes in the film to be like super cops. And they seem incredibly diligent. And you also include a lot of their personal lives in the documentary. You know, I think most prominently you have Pearl Carrillo, Gil's wife, and the story about their marriage and their relationship and what happened to them during the uh, Ramirez uh, spree of killing is so fascinating to me. And I'm just curious about why you decided to center this so much around the cops and what that was like getting into their personal lives. Because, again, that's not something we see all the time. Well, it's, you know, you bring up a couple of of terrific points. I mean, we are at this like massive cultural inflection point, right, of the, the like sort of absolute and abject like crisis in policing where things fundamentally categorically need to change. You know, the killing of unarmed black men, that is criminal and has to change like immediately. Um, And yet this story to me is it's it's a very important when you're looking at sort of these stories that are set in historical context to not judge them through kind of the lens of the moment, right? This is a story from a, a very specific time and place. It's Los Angeles. It's 1985. And I think what grabbed me about the characters and about Gil and, and his relationship to his wife, Pearl, you know, specifically was there is this massive human toll that takes place in a murder investigation and for the homicide cops that are on the front lines. My kids at that time were about 7, 10, and 13 years of age. I mean, he was working 17, 18 hours a day. He would just come home, um, shower, maybe get a couple of hours sleep. You know, and I had to deal with the three kids by myself. We had to go through everyday life, mostly not having him there with us. It wasn't easy. Because this is like, it's the most extreme thing one human being can do to another. And when your job every time you walk out the door is to sort of stare that horror in the face and all day long where you are the sort of um, thin and sort of final line between the next victim and a predator that's out hunting in the city, the stakes couldn't be any higher. And, and 
it must be, you know, I would imagine, uh, and, and sort of came to realize in this specific case, impossible to turn that off, you know, no yeah. matter what you do or who you are, you're still coming home. You've got, you know, a, a wife, you've got children, you've got your sort of personal life. And suddenly when it become when it became, when I heard the stories of how personal it became for Gil, I connected with it viscerally. I'm a father of four. And so I wanted to shine a light on that corner of his personality and that experience. I think it says everything about him and Pearl's uh, relationship when he tells the story about how when he came home, he planned to date her just so he could dump her to get back at her for breaking his heart. Classic. And of course, they end up getting married. <laughs> classic, classic. Yeah, it's great. You know, and um, in that one anecdote, you sort of instantaneously get like a snapshot of the entire marriage. You know? Oh, yeah. You can tell how deeply they love each other, you know, how deeply he loved her and how hard it was for him when uh, she's like, I'm taking the kids and I'm out of here until that killer is caught. And I found Gil to be an incredibly human and relatable character with, with a, uh, with a larger than life kind of character arc, you know, somebody who goes from, you know, a kid on the streets in East LA dreaming of becoming a cop one day uh, to kind of like the pinnacle of, of Los Angeles criminal investigation, which is being a homicide detective. And suddenly he's faced with the case of a lifetime. Um, And so it's one of the, it's in some ways almost like a cautionary tale, like be careful what you wish for, because, you know, he, he got it. Yeah. Well, Los Angeles, I can't even imagine being on the like most elite murder squad in Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s. Of course, we see a little bit in your film, The Hillside Strangler Case. We, of course, had the Golden State Killer Case, which wasn't called then. Uh, people were calling it actually the original Night Stalker case during and after Richard Ramirez's spree, which we'll talk about. But Los Angeles itself and the, and the crimes taking place there and the sort of sprawling geography of Los Los Angeles, the neighborhoods, they play the role of a character of sorts in your film. And I know that I've heard other filmmakers say that it's one of the hardest cities to sort of capture as a character because it varies so much from block to block, place to place, and it is so broad. How did you do it? Because I think you do it really well. And I think I love the animation, by the way, that sort of jumps us around place to place and orients us. But how did you decide to approach that, the city as a city, but also as a place? where all of this crime was happening pretty much at the same time. Beautiful question. Um, yeah, from the get-go, it struck me as like L.A. is a central character in this, and, and it has to be a portrait of a city because it was in some ways analogous to the sort of like what we're experiencing in the pandemic, right, where nobody is safe anywhere, and it didn't matter whether it's outlying outskirts or downtown LA or sort of wherever you are, there was this palpable sense that anyone at any time could be a victim. And so it was a chance to sort of go through the neighborhoods and go through that like crazy quilt that is LA and sort of try to stitch it together and evoke that visually. In fact, one of the sort of like strangest, most surreal experiences early on was as I was sort of looking to get a sense of the city and what it was like and what had changed and what hadn't, we decided to travel, you know, one night or over a couple of nights, actually, to every location where Ramirez had struck. Hmm. And um, it was 
eerie and surreal sort of hops, you know, a starting with a map and sort of seeing it on there and just seeing all the like red dots where things have happened. And then B what it was like driving up to a house and looking at the neighborhood and the house nearby and the one across the street and what the lighting was and what had changed and where the street numbers were. And so in doing that, just sort of walking in his shoes to some extent or another, it gave this vantage point on LA and sort of fostered these ideas from the amazing creative team that I had the chance to work with on this. Like, Ooh, let's capture it this way. What if we did aerials? What if we shot this at night? So it was a interesting and challenging and exciting undertaking trying to capture, you know, LA at night, 85. Right. And it's so, you know, I think hard these days because I think, sort of the true crime documentary has sort of clicked into something, you know, of a formula that we're used to seeing. I think it was established by things like Making a Murderer and The Staircase, sort of like the the sweeping drone shot, the panning B-roll. And I think when you have a place like L.A., it just doesn't work that way because you are talking about all these different pockets. And we're also talking with Richard Ramirez about so many different types of crimes. And this is the thing that just kept striking me over and over again as someone who was familiar with the Night Stalker case, just sort of in the pantheon of like American serial killer lore. But I hadn't really reexamined the details of the case until watching your film. And I cannot believe how many different kinds of crimes with different kinds of victims, different MOs, different sort of crime scene situations that he was involved in. I mean, it's very unusual, right, to have a serial killer specifically who's also a a child sexual predator, who's also someone who kills old people and men and women and young people, kills them in different ways. Isn't that something that, you know, makes this case really stand apart? It absolutely does. I I think it was sort of a one of the like astonishing, terrifying and particularly challenging elements for the homicide cops that were working it is it was completely patternless. And it was completely seemingly random. I mean, one of the things that all you know, that any cop, you know, any homicide cop will tell you is that killers have MOs. They have their sort of patterns and ticks and idiosyncrasies. And it is those things which stand out and are consistent from one crime to another that enable those who are chasing them to eventually sort of put together the puzzle and the pattern and lead it to them. And what was so crazy about this and so unprecedented, because the other thing that I think is important to remember is sort of contextualizing this historically a bit. This predated kind of the era of criminal profiling as we think of it, right? And so there was this notion like, okay, serial killers have an MO. And so that is one of the reasons it was particularly challenging for Gil with this hunch early on. Hey, I think this is one guy. And like, yes, I understand that the victims range in age from nine to 83 and, and that the murder weapon, sometimes it's a knife, sometimes it's a gun, sometimes it's a different caliber gun, sometimes it's a tire tool. Um, it, it was challenging for Gil to sort of like convince people to come around to the idea that one person could be responsible for this diversity of crimes. One of the most compelling people that you talk to in the film is Anastasia. She was just six years old when she was abducted, sexually assaulted by Ramirez. She describes it so vividly and so bravely and openly in the film. I'm wondering what that experience was like for you and why she agreed to do this film. That was 
for me, the most powerful or certainly among the very most powerful and personal and just heartbreaking interviews to conduct and, and to sit through and, and sort of bear witness to. And, you know, there were times when I just had to sort of, you know, look away or avert my eyes or, you know, wipe the tears from my eyes sort of hearing it because you don't want to throw the storyteller, the subject off. And yet at the same time, it's just so wrenching to hear. And yet at the same time, what struck me about Anastasia from the get-go was how incredibly strong and brave and kind of fundamentally heroic she was, or is rather, in the sense that that's the, about the most horrifying thing a human being could go through, what she lived through at sort of like that age. And to have your sort of like innocence stolen and violated so sort of categorically and irrevocably. And yet she is so tough and so resilient and refused to let her life be defined and reduced by it. And that was one of the sort of first things that she had sort of said to, you know, to me and my producing partners and team is, hey, this is not who I am. This is in the rearview mirror for me. This is in the past. And, you know, at the end of the series, when you finally hear in, in episode four, I think she makes that point, like, yeah, this happened to me, but this did not break me. And I have had a wonderful life and I'm having a wonderful life, you know, as a mother, as an adult, as a wife, as a um, professional. And the heroic nature of that was really moving and I think important to articulate. What about the people that you talked to that were, for lack of a better word, extremely tangential to this story? I'm thinking about the woman in the thrift store who almost bought the ACDC hat that Richard Ramirez ended up buying. I'm thinking about the librarian uh, who, you know, he asked that one question to. How did you find those people? You know, it's really interesting. The way I work in these films is I do firsthand first person storytelling, right? If you didn't live it, if you didn't experience it, you're not in the movie. I don't do sort of outside experts and sort of, you know, armchair analysis and that sort of thing. And yet in a story like this, what struck me very early on was there is this sort of like massive diversity of people whose lives never would have come in contact, right? We live these kind of like atomized lives in Los Angeles where you're sort of in your bubble and in your community and in your life. And these people never would have crossed paths otherwise. And yet you've got this like serial killer rampaging through Los Angeles, connecting these what would be unrelated lives. And then in looking at it, then it became like, wow, this is such a cross section of Los Angeles. So who are those people that had just sort of brushes with the devil, so to speak, or sort of like the slightest, faintest crosses. But even those people kind of like caught a whiff of it and were enveloped in the story, even if it was in sort of a, you know, sort of minor key way. Uh, on one of those days, I looked up and there was this gaunt, disheveled looking man, dirty black t-shirt, uh, said uh, Jack Daniels on it dirty hair, absolutely disgusting, rotted teeth, had a very strong body odor, almost like, almost like a goat. And he had these dead eyes. It was kind of like a, an animal that meant you on He wanted to know where the books on horoscope and torture were. You know, you can sort of still see the specificity with which those people recall what happened in their interactions with this guy, because this really was, I think, you know, it was kind of like a force of evil marauding through it. And it's emblazoned in people's consciousness. Um, 
no matter how 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 sort of personal and specific that that uh, the interaction is. And so basically, what happens is, you know, in my experience in terms of finding the storytellers, is you just begin to put the word out. Hey, we're telling this story. And kind of you're putting it out with the cops, you're putting it out with victims, you're putting it out with whoever there is that you know. And I have sort of a big network of, of people that I know at this point. And so it's like putting bait in the water, so to speak, you know, where you're like, hey, anybody that's got something, no matter how minor or how sort of substantive, come in and sort of meet with us and, you know, let's hear a piece of your story. And so it became a fascinating way for me as a filmmaker to voyage through L.A meeting these different people. And then I realized that it was a way to sort of broaden the net, so to speak, of the, of the voices of people who were impacted in one way or another. Hmm. There's so many things about this story that are really stranger than fiction. Like if you wrote them in a, a novel or in a movie script, you probably would have an editor say like, no, no, that's really crazy. That would never happen. Uh, and then there are lots of things that happen all the time in fiction in this story. And one of them is sort of the constant conflicts that the cops have with other departments, other jurisdictions, with po- politicians. But the one that really fascinated me was their relationship with the media. You have this reporter, Laurel Erickson, uh, in the film talking about how she sort of land stumbled upon a, a piece of the case that they had not released to the media and how then she approached Gil and Frank to try to make them a deal to sort of broker some sort of exclusivity to get, you know, more information. And, you know, he called her, Gil called her an extortionist (laughs) at one point. I'm wondering where you land on that conflict between the cops and the press. I mean, you're a journalist. You, You come at these things as a storyteller. You know the role of journalism and how important it is in the public interest to let people know what's going on. But where did you land on that, having been so close to Gil and Frank's story and hearing about their relationship with the media? Well, a wonderful question. Um, as, as a storyteller, I, I loved it because, you know, right from the get-go, I realized, wow, this is a whole nother like element and dimension to the story, which is, yeah, you've got the cops. Yeah, you've got the killer. Yeah, you've got the victims. But you've also got this like sort of third party obstructionist sort of complicated, conflicted relationship with the media. And this was kind of the beginning of the like um, the tabloidization of the news and the 24 hour news cycle. Right. And this particular story was of course like catnip to the media because it was so sort of sensational and terrifying and such great copy. And, and then meeting these characters, you know, as you, as you, as you talk about it, you know, like sitting down with Laurel and her producing partner, Paul Skolnick, I was just sat down. I was riveted. I was like, I love these guys. They're such sort of compelling characters and I'm a character junkie. Right. So anytime you get these people that are um, fascinating characters with passion and a frenzy to them, you sort of feel like as a filmmaker, it's, you know, it's a gift from the cinema gods. And yet, like, morally, when you think about it, it's a very complicated thing, right? Because what the media is doing, or in this case, you know, very specifically Laurel, you know, and and Paul in 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 the chasing of the story, it threatens to undermine the very integrity of the investigation. If they come forward with these sort of critical clues that, you know, Gil and Frank and the homicide detectives are husbanding and carefully hoarding the information out of, it can completely destroy and ruin the case and sort of keep this killer at large. Um, And yet at the same time, everybody has their role, 
right? And, and I think that's what's so fascinating about this is it's the conflicting vectors. Like Gil and Frank's job, their only job is like catch the killer and keep this from happening again, get them off the streets. But for Laurel and Paul and Tony Valdez and Zoe Turr and any of those sort of, you know, journalists and, and sort of media folks that are covering it, their job is get the story and get the best story possible and get it out there to the public because the public does have a right to know. And so it, it is this very sort of like fraught relationship. And then you'll also periodically see the cops using the relationship of the media to when it is of value to them, whether that be, you know, Frank doing his sort of interview with the LA Times and sort of, you know, putting out his challenge to the Night Stalker and calling him a coward or, or whatever, you know, the case may be. They're using it sometimes to like hook the suspect and reel them in and sometimes critically to do it. So it is. And then just as a storyteller, the kind of like extortionist nature of that quid pro quo, I, I, I thought um, whatever that you're sort of like moral compass on this, what a great storytelling moment. I was really fascinated in the investigation of this case about all of the details that ended up you know, helping them home in on Ramirez. One of the things that blew my mind that I did not know about was the details around the shoe prints and the shoes. Only six pairs of those particular size Avia shoes were ever sent to the United States, five to Arizona, one to Los Angeles in black. I just kept thinking, like, can you imagine being the cops and, and just knowing that there is you, you could find the killer, you know, maybe by tracing them to a shoe purchase because there was only one that wasn't that crazy? It's it's so crazy, you know, it's, and, and it's been my experience really in all these films over the years, where is if as a, and you know, somebody who writes, you know, fiction and narrative stuff as well, if you were to make these pitches up and walk into a room <laughs> and try to pitch them and sell them to like a producer or a network, they would be like, that's ridiculous and that's yeah. a terrible pitch. What do you mean like three guys once tried to buy a submarine for the Cali drug cartel from the Russians? You know, it just seems preposterous, like in Operation Odessa, you know, for example. But like the Avia shoe print, I think it's exactly one of those things. And, and one of the things that's like fascinating about an investigation that's this sort of like massive and sprawling is really only in retrospect do you see how one stone leads ineluctably to the next, right? right. In the moment, it's this, this just morass of clues. I think they said there was something like 10,000 clues that they were keeping track of at the height of this. And that means... 9,999 of them are, you know, nonsense and a waste of time and a, and a fool's errand. But still, you have to run down every single one. And then suddenly, when you get something hot, like one pair of black avias, like, that's it. Like, this is going to crack the case wide open. And so it, and it becomes this sort of seemingly like white hot clue and the cornerstone to the whole thing. And then just as quickly, it sort of like fades away. And suddenly, you know, one day, whatever happens, you know, and there's different stories about this, but Richard Ramirez, you know, decides to like, you know, throw away the shoes and not wear those anymore. And boom, that clue is sort yeah. of like gone. You know, overnight. Thanks, Diane Feinstein. Indeed, right? indeed, indeed. There's, there's, there's definitely those guys to this day. I think get indigestion when they think about that. 
Well, that actually is something I wanted to ask about because there are so many things like this, you know, uh, and I think in any investigation, little mistakes, miscommunications. Like, I don't think Diane Feinstein in the moment was thinking, like, how can I screw up this investigation? Right. She thought she was helping. Of course, it didn't end up helping. Uh, you think about like the, the car with the potential fingerprints being stored in the open, you know, the failed alarm button at the dentist's office, these little errors. It's very easy, I think. Only in retrospect to also for investigators to say this would have been easier, fewer people would have died, et cetera, et cetera, if these mistakes hadn't been made. But is that necessarily true? I'm not sure that it is. You know, it's, it's, that's another, another great point you raise, which is like it's a challenge as a filmmaker because what happens when you're telling a sort of past tense story where you know the beginning and end of it, suddenly in retrospect, it seems as if the path was sort of perfectly clear and direct the entire time, right? But that's only a product of like the killer has been caught. All of the sort of clues have been, you know, chained and sort of traced one ineluctably to the next all the way back to the sort of origins and sort of suddenly the puzzle is put together for you. But really in the moment, it is this sort of like steeplechase where you have countless investigators in countless departments and conflicting jurisdictions, all kind of like stepping on each other, trying to sort of chase down this like vast number of clues. And so it leads to, you know, what Errol Morris called, you know, wilderness of errors, which I think is a beautiful title. Um, but in the moment, of course, there's errors. I mean, the volume of, of stuff that you're dealing with and and only, I think, in, like I said, in, in sort of hindsight is this sort of like pattern clear. So, of course, there were mistakes that were made. And Gil and Frank will tell you, you know, they made a million mistakes and everybody does. It's the nature of it. But at the end of the day, what I think is so sort of satisfying narratively about this is the entire city is the victim. And then the entire city kind of comes together when Ramirez is caught. So it's like the symphony all kind of like leads to this one particular apprehension. And then they're like rejoicing that happens. And it's the people in the streets that catch him. You know, it's not the cops or the journalists or whatever. It's the people in the streets. And I think there was this sort of beautiful poetic justice to that. I find myself wondering if a criminal like this could even be as prolific and do the same kinds of acts. I mean, I just I can't believe the frequency and the like the rapidity with which he committed these crimes. I mean, multiple crimes on in one night, like, you know, being unsuccessful, killing one person and going and killing a different person. And, you know, with the advances in technology, surveillance, policing, you know, where we are now, I mean, I'm curious to know what you think. Do you think a Richard Ramirez could get away with what he was able to get away with for so long in, in 2021? Well, you bring up a couple of great points, which is there was the like the frenzied nature of this, right? I mean, it, it just becomes this like animalistic, almost like unbridled terror spree, right? And I think that's what sort of makes him so scary as a boogeyman. It's this like cocaine fueled, you know, drug fueled like lunacy. And that's like sort of particularly a horrifying aspect of this. And as to whether or not like the times always change and they affect the way crimes are being committed, right? So it would never quite unfold the same way. But if you look at, to this day, you know, the serial killers being apprehended in Russia, I think, tragically, that, like, this is something in human nature, you know, sort of murder and serial murder is something that has always existed from sort of, like, time immemorial. So it's never going to be quite the same. It always sort of changes and evolves. But I think, 
uh, I think it's a part of human nature. And I think in some way or another, the film is kind of a meditation on, um, or at least begs the question of, this is, it's sort of a story of good and evil, right? I mean, right, right. you have the sort of like devil-like horrifying nature of Ramirez and his crimes. And then you have these people that are just like forces of good going down and sort of like, you know, stepping into the gutter to bring him to justice. And so there is something almost like iconically good and evil about the story. That's true. But I think you also raise the question about evil itself, you know, whether it exists, whether it's made, whether it's born. And I I think Richard Ramirez Uh, And a very, very small handful of other notorious criminals make us ask that question. At the end of the film, Gil talks about how he still prays for Richard to this day. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and never shall be world without end. Amen. Father, I offer these prayers up, and then I go on with with names, people. And end up with Ramirez. I found that really haunting. And for me, it raised that question again about the nature of evil, uh, a human being who could commit these acts. And, you know, we hear Ramirez's life was awful. And uh, it obviously doesn't excuse what he did, but it adds complication to it. What did you think about Gil saying that, that he still prays for Richard Ramirez? It was um, startling. And in the moment when he said it, as soon as he said the words, I thought, that's the end of the movie. Because it was so complex and so haunting. And in a way, kind of a perfect encapsulation of what the entire story and journey had been for him. And the fact that it is kind of holding the polarity of good and evil in the same place, you know, and, and I think hearing the way that he keeps those two kind of competing ideas in his head and every day to this night, 35 years later, the idea that there's a God that he's praying to, and there is uh, if not a devil, then an evil that sort of allows someone like Richard Ramirez and, and, and the kind of like inherent tension and conflict in his psyche and in all in, in our human psyches of something like this. Um, the open-ended, conflicted, complex nature of it is what I loved about it. And I thought that was the right way to go out on because I don't think it's one of these things where the question is more interesting than the answer. Hmm. I agree. You made this film, I'm guessing, before the pandemic, right? (laughs) And we're now at a point where Netflix is such an essential part of more people's lives than it's ever been before, which means millions of people are going to watch this documentary and they're going to be fascinated by it. And I'm wondering, knowing that it's out in the world, all these people watching it, what are you hoping they will take away from your film? I hope to immerse people in a story that is complicated and moving and powerful and and hopefully compelling, you know, riveting for whatever reason, Um, and to challenge you to sort of, I guess, walk in the shoes of all these different people and sort of figure out what your 
what's your take on this and what's your experiences and why, you know, why are we still talking about this all these years later? Why does this story fascinate us? Why is sort of murder a, you know, a cornerstone of humanity and of genre storytelling, you know, entertainment, if you want to call it like in a weird way, all of us are sort of involved in this and we should call into question why that is. Why are we so fascinated by it? It is thought-provoking. It is complicated. It is riveting. It is entertaining. It's also noir. Uh, the documentary is called Night Stalker. That's the series on Netflix. Uh, Taylor Russell, director, thank you so much for talking to me about it. I really enjoyed watching it. Wonderful questions, and I love the back and forth on it. And thank you for uh, the push and pull, and, and uh, you're, you're a beautiful interviewer, so thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Tiller Russell. Tiller has a new film coming out called Silk Road. It's a true crime thriller about America's first millennial gangster, Ross Ulbricht, the 29-year-old creator of a dark net website whose billion-dollar empire was taken down by an undercover cop. It premieres February 19th. For more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, other podcasts, and the latest in pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for upcoming episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.